We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Peter. If you've got a Bible with you, it'll probably help you to turn there. So you're looking for 1 Peter uh, and chapter 2. I am going to read from verse 11. I'm going to read a couple of verses and then we'll read some more a little bit later on. So I'm just going to read verse 11 and 12 to start with. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So over the last couple of months, as we've been looking through the first sort of chapter and a half of 1 Peter, Peter's taken time to talk to this, uh, this group of Christians in northern Turkey that he's writing to, to talk to them about who they are to spell out their identity, to remind them that they are foreigners who don't actually belong in the land that they live in, to remind them that they belong instead to Jesus and that they're part of his church, to remind them that they have a hope beyond the life that they are living now and that they should instead be focusing on that and living for it. And he's turning now to start to actually address the concerns that they had And what we're going to see over the next few weeks as we kind of go through the end of chapter 2, chapter 3, into sort of the start of chapter 4, is him unpicking each of the various problems that they were having. And then after that, he'll talk for a little bit about um, how they should handle the suffering that they're facing. So he's, he's just introducing, I suppose, everything that he wants to say after this about how do they respond to the situation that they were facing. And that was that they they were finding that, I suppose, people were being nasty to them, you could put it that way, um, that they were facing what you might call kind of social persecution. So they've, they've moved into a new area. It's largely a group of Christians who've been exiled from the city of Rome into northern Turkey. And they're finding that people are looking down on them because of their faith, that they're finding it difficult to get people to come and use their businesses. They're finding that their neighbours are being rude about them and talking about them behind their backs. They're finding that generally in the society, they are maligned because they choose to follow Jesus. And they want to know what they should do about this. They want to know how they should respond to people who, as Peter put it in what I just read, speak against them as evildoers. What should they do? And they're being, they are actually being particularly slandered. We find, if we look in, in the history books at what the Romans wrote about the Christians, they tended to say three things. They tended to say that they were traitors because they refused to swear to the emperor, which we'll come on to a little bit later on. Um, they tended to say that they were cannibals because they kind of heard a little bit about communion and they didn't quite get what they were hearing, but it sounded like people were eating other people, eating flesh and blood. Um, and they accused them of incest because people who called each other brother and sister ended up marrying because Christians would call one another brother and sister. And so they got accused of th- these crimes that in that society, much like in ours, I guess, would be seen as terrible. And they want to know, what, what do we do about it? How should we respond to this? How do we win? I suppose you could frame it that way. How do we win? How do we succeed in this environment where people are saying these things about us? The first thing Peter does is he reminds them again who they are. He calls them, in the translation I read from, he calls them uh, sojourners and exiles or foreigners. People who are living in a land that is not their own. And he's reminding them of everything he's said already that actually 
their primary identity is not in the nation that they live in, and it's not in the nation that they were born in. It's that they are citizens of the kingdom of God, that they are part of, of the church, that they've been, been bought and brought by Jesus into a completely new community and joined to that, that they have a new home, that their ultimate identity is found in knowing him and not in the place that they find themselves. And that's true for us as well. If we choose to follow Jesus, whether this nation is just one we're living in or the one that we were born in and would kind of claim as our nationality, either way, that's not really who we are. We're people who instead belong to the kingdom of God. and We find ourselves citizens of heaven. We could also say that we are foreigners here. So he says, you're foreigners. And then the tone of what carries on, basically what he's saying is, you're only visitors. So how do you live in this place when you're just a visitor? Well, you need to be polite. For just a bit. You need to be polite. Think about it this way. Um, you go around to someone else's home. Maybe they've invited you around for dinner. Maybe they've invited you around for a cup of tea or something. And um, you arrive at the door, and immediately you have this sort of social gambit of of kind of complicated relations as they invite you in and you try to decide what on earth you're supposed to do with your shoes. I don't know if you've ever, you've ever had that, but I'm sure you have, but that sense of, is this a house where I'm supposed to take them off? Or is this a house where actually if I take them off, they're going to look at me like I'm mad because they don't want to smell my feet? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to act here? And normally, what I imagine most of us would do is you ask, because it's not that complicated, do you want me to take my shoes off or not? And then people very politely say, oh, we don't mind, which is code for we really do mind, but we want you to feel comfortable, which, <laughs> which is nice of them. Um, and then you, you do whatever you want. But it might be, it's quite a small thing, but I think it kind of demonstrates the point. I go into someone else's house, and what I'm concerned by is, I suppose, what would they think of me, but also, like, what, what's the rules here? How am I supposed to live here? Because this is not my house. I get to set the rules in my house. But in this house, how do people live? What am I supposed to do? What, what counts as polite? And I don't really know the rules, so I'm going to ask someone and find out what they are. And I'm going to try and do my best to do what's polite. A bit like that. And if someone's invited you around for dinner, depending on the culture you're from and they're from, it might be polite to bring a gift. And then you kind of run the gambit of what kind of gift is acceptable and I've done that wrong lots of times. It seemed to, <laughs> seemed to always manage to choose, okay, maybe a bottle of wine is the right thing here on occasions whenever you go around someone's house who doesn't drink, which never ends very well, but there you go. Um, we are supposed to be polite. That's what he says. We need to live the way he actually puts it. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable. So what he's saying is don't have destructive behaviour and live demonstrably good lives. So don't do things which are self-destructive. Don't sin. I mean, Peter particularly has in mind sexual sin with that, with that phrase. But in the culture that I lived in, he, I think we could expand it to don't go along with the culture uh, and the kind of sins that are normal in the culture in which you are, but also live lives that people looking at you would know are good. Or, if you like, be polite. Do what people think is good. Find out what, whether or not they expect you to take your shoes off and do so. And then, don't engage in self-destructive behaviour. To think about it this way, you wouldn't go around someone's house, um, take off your shoes because they've asked you to, and then set fire to the curtains and expect them to have no problem with it. It is destructive of the environment in which you're in. 
when we sin, yeah, we do damage to ourselves. We also don't only kind of set fire to your own heart, you also set fire to your neighborhood. When we choose to break the laws that God gives us, which do damage to people around us and society who don't even follow Jesus, because it is destructive of both ourselves and of others. And Peter says we should really be thinking about that. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So in the way that we respond to accusations, in the way that we behave in society, our soul is at stake. The choices that we make, whether or not to do things that God says are bad, and whether or not to choose to do things that he says are good, our soul is at stake. And actually being a good house guest is choosing to do what God says is good and choosing to not do what God says is forbidden for us. We, um, we master our soul for the sake of our neighbours, if you like. How do you win? They're facing these accusations. People are saying terrible things about them. How does Peter say that they win? He says that they win by dying. It says nothing about responding. Do you notice that? The response to what people say against them is, do good things, don't do bad things. For their sake. We win by dying. We win by choosing to put them first. They're saying, actually, if, if I don't sin and I do good, that is for their sake as well as my own. We win by dying, which shouldn't surprise us, because how did Jesus win? How did he defeat uh, the grip that sin had on our lives? How did he defeat death? How did he defeat the enemy? He did it by choosing to come to a people who cared nothing for him and then live his whole life in service of them rather than himself and then die in their place so that anyone who chooses to follow him can find that actually that, that burden of sin is lifted from them and that death no longer has a hold on them and that the enemy's wiles don't affect them in the same way. He won by dying. We win by dying, by choosing to put others before ourselves, by choosing to subject ourselves to other people. And then Peter says, what will the outcome of this be? He says, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Your good living, you choosing to live well and choosing to follow Jesus, will either bring people to Christ or will condemn them. That's what that basically means. It will mean that when they meet God, they will either find themselves having been converted by having seen what the life of a Christian looks like, or actually their words against us will go back against them because they're lies, because we've chosen to live well. So not only is our soul at stake in how we live, but also theirs. The souls of people around us, the souls of our friends, our neighbours, those who don't know Jesus that we interact with, their souls are at stake too in the way that we choose to behave. I don't know if you've ever noticed that because you're a Christian, people react differently around you. I actually find it surprisingly often at work that people temper or change their behaviour because I'm in the room. Now, I've never asked them to, and I wouldn't, because I don't necessarily think that it's fair of me to put demands on them that they can't follow. They're not filled with the Spirit. But yet, I find that their behavior changes, or they do something and go, oh my word, I'm sorry, Tim. 
despite the fact that I'm not particularly bothered whether they swear in front of me, but it seems to suddenly offend them because they've watched me live. And I've never made any comment about what I'm doing. I've talked about why I might live the way I do, but I've never had conversations with people about what I might choose to do, and yet they've watched and they've seen. And that scares me a little bit because I'm sure they've seen plenty of things that are not that helpful as well. But I can tell that they've seen some that must be because they changed their behavior around me. Or because when they've been around me for a while, they start to come to me with their problems and ask, what can we do about this? And ask for help, not because I've told them I can, but because they've seen there's something different about me because I follow Jesus and that's changed my life. They've seen my good deeds, and perhaps they might glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says we defend ourselves by our conduct. We don't respond to accusation. We live well. And we make it obvious that what they're saying is a lie because of our lives. So we live in line with society's values up until the point that they conflict with God's. I think we can, we can kind of have two tendencies. We either, um, we either kind of resist the society that we live in. We think, oh my word, this world is evil. It's true. And therefore, make a big loud show about following Jesus and about the opposition that that faces with the society in which we live. Or we can do the opposite and we can kind of privatise our faith and not tell anyone about it. And kind of keep it secret because we don't want people to know or we don't want to face the opposition we think might come when actually something is happening around us that we have to choose not to engage in, or choose not to watch, or choose not to do, or choose not to talk about. And I don't think either is that helpful. Peter doesn't actually encourage us to do either of those things. Instead, he says, do good. Don't do wrong, and do good. Which means that I think it's actually a lot harder. We have to think carefully about everything that we do. We have to consider our actions and our thoughts and our feelings. We have to discuss, perhaps, with other Christians about, is this behavior helpful for me or not? Should I, so society seems to do things this way. Should I be thinking like that? And decide, each time, are we engaging in something which actually is waging war on our souls, something which is not in line with God's values, or... Should we be happy to go along with that for the sake of those around us? Because we just want to do good as society understands it up to the point that God says differently. So don't unthinkingly follow along with people around you, but equally don't unthinkingly reject the world and kind of flee away from it. We need to be in it and choose to do good for the sake of others. We have to choose to die. We win by dying to ourselves by subjecting ourselves to others. And that's kind of Peter's introductory statement to all the things he wants to say further on. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the first of those. So he kind of then talks about three different places that he wants these Christians to, to die, in my phrasing, that he wants them to subject themselves to others. And we're going to look at the first of them. So over the next three weeks, we'll, we will look at each of them. So institutions and then individuals and then in marriages. So I'm going to read from... Verses 13 to, uh, to 17. Uh, and we'll see what he has to say. I, I find some of this stuff actually quite surprising. So we'll take a little bit of time over it. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we've kind of already seen that idea. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. It's quite a strange, or to me, it seems like quite a strange set of things for Peter to say. Be subject to every human institution. So particularly thinking, I guess, of government and the various tools and bodies that government sets up. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. I think in our culture and in, in, I suppose, the way of life in which I was brought up, that kind of sticks in the craw a little bit. Seems like an odd thing to say. That actually to choose to do what you're told by secular authority is God's will. And yeah, that's what it says. So I can't get around that. But it, it just... It, it doesn't feel right almost. And the fact it doesn't feel right says more about me than it does about, about this text. So what does it say? It says that God sets up government for two reasons. It says, to, uh, so verse 14, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So that's, that's what government's for. And it exists as one of God's arms to do that in this age to punish wrong and to praise good. However well we think it may or may not be at doing that, that's what it's for. To punish wrong and to praise good. And is one of, and perhaps often the most obvious way that God does that in this age, that punishes evil and praises good. See, obeying authority is inherently a good thing. Even saying that sounds odd, I think, to our ears. But obeying authority is inherently a good thing. We are made to do it. God's authority is demonstrated to us in worldly authority. And it is a human thing to be subject to someone else. It's part of who we're meant to be. We are supposed to be. It's kind of, kind of the orderly functioning of human life, is that we will be under someone else. We will be subject to someone else, that we will need to obey someone else. We're supposed to be that way. And actually every human government institution that we might be told to do something by is part of the way that God exercises his authority in this world. He gives them authority. It comes ultimately from him. That is not to say that every human institution performs God's will in the sense of doing what God would want. But it is to say that the power that they get comes from God and that they are given it for a purpose. And that because they're given it from God, we should do what they tell us to. Up to a point that we'll come to later. But just to to stay on that theme, actually, is that not what we see in Jesus' life? Not just that he obeys the government because he, he does to a point, but that when he talks about his father, he consistently says that he chooses to obey him. The son chooses to obey the father. That's a pattern 
that we see in Jesus' life when he was on earth, that he would choose to obey the Father, that we follow, that we choose to obey God. But actually that it's a kind of normal human thing, that you would be subject to someone and choose to obey them. That you would allow yourself to be mastered by others. And I think if I say you need to obey God, to those of us who follow Jesus, that doesn't sound strange. I think we can think, yeah, great, God's God, I should obey him. But as soon as we start to say, actually, you need to allow yourself to be mastered by other people that God has given power to, it hits something in me. It doesn't feel right because I don't want to. But what it's hitting in me is my kind of human, sinful desire to be in control of my life, I suppose, and and my sinful desire to be an individual and to rule everything that I see, none of which I have a right to. And actually, instead, I should be choosing to obey God also in the institutions that he's put down. We choose to be mastered by the state. Much like Jesus, the warrior king, who could have, if he wanted to, come in blood and battle and torn the world apart, and instead chose to come as a lowly manual worker and subject himself to the state, even allowing the state to put him to death for a crime he didn't commit. Yes, for much greater purpose than that. But he chose to allow that. He did not have to, though it is to our great benefit that he chose to. So how do we win in our interaction with the state? Because this is they live, um, they live in a hostile world, these people Peter's writing to. How do we live? How do we win in our interactions with the state? We, we win by dying, by choosing to go, you know what, I'm going to make myself subject to them. I'm going to die to my desire for control, and I'm going to choose to obey. And you might be thinking, Tim, surely this can't be true. Peter's writing this. I've read some of the Gospels. What did Peter do when he came into contact with uh, the... um, What's the word I'm looking for? I can't think. With people who were coming to take Jesus away, those who wanted to arrest him. What was his reaction? Took his sword out and he hit them with it. This is not a man who was subject to the people around them. He wanted to get the way that he saw things should be and he made it happen. Surely this can't be right. And even more shocking, the emperor at the time that he's talking about is the Emperor Nero, who is an appalling person who kind of sits behind a lot of the language about the beast in Revelation. That's the kind of contemporary reference to it. Who said of, actually slightly later than this, but said of Christians that they were the people who hated the human race and that all of them should be killed and used to use them as, the story may or may not be true, but the story is told that he used to use them to light his parties by setting them on fire and standing them in the corners. Um, And indeed, the man who eventually um, executed Peter himself. He's the emperor. So Peter is not talking about the kind of relatively benign state that we might live in. He's talking about a state that is pretty hostile to Christians and only became more so as history went on. I mean, he's kind of at the very beginning of this wave of persecution that intensified. So does he really mean that? Well, he does. Can we ever disobey the government? Yeah, I think so when it tells us to sin, but in no other circumstance. And the government will sometimes tell us to sin. We get the example in Daniel of him being told it would be illegal for him to pray, so he prayed. Or being told that, he, um, that they had to, or his friends had to bow down to a statue or they'd be killed, so they refused to and they were thrown into a fire. Not that it killed them. 
It's okay to disobey the government when it tells you to sin, but not otherwise, not when we want to. You know, God's the one who votes, which actually means that every leader we have is one that God has picked out. That is not always, does not imply that he thinks they're the best. I think God gives the leaders we deserve most of the time, and sometimes we're very lucky and we get leaders we don't deserve. Most of the time, it's a curse on us. You can tell when you look at the options on the ballot, it's like none of them are any good, which is consistently my experience, that, that God is not blessing us with the choice of leaders. But still, he is the one who chooses, and he has chosen them for purpose and for reason, and given them a mandate from heaven to punish evil and to praise good. We do not have a license for rebellion because we're loyal to Christ. We know we don't belong here. That doesn't mean we get to reject here. Now, does that mean we're supposed to be doormats? Because I think it can sound a bit like it. Am I meant to be a doormat that sort of just lets the government do things to me? Well, Jesus had some things to say about that, actually. Um, Let me just read to you. This is Matthew uh, chapter 5. He said, But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other one also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Are we supposed to be doormats? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I'd say don't sin, but choose to die. Choose to put yourself to death for the sake of others. Choose to obey the government, even if you find the things that they're asking you to do to be wrong as long as they are not sin. If you do not like what they're asking you to do, that does not give you a license to disagree. So what what does this look like? What does this look like when we choose to die? Well, we remember that we're only visitors who want to make sure that we don't tread mud all over other people's houses. We live for the good of the place that we're in. We might think that a particular... Uh, policy or a particular politician or the implications of a particular policy are evil. But, and, and actually, we might be right about the policy, but we should remember never to think or say or try to fight thinking and saying that the people are evil because they too are people who bear the image of God. We don't get a right to judge them and we need to remember that they are not more evil than us. Christians should always be the ones who know utmost that we ourselves needed saving from much and why I am not now a sinner I was and I still sin Jesus may have rescued me and made me a saint but I know where I came from and I did not get myself out and I am no better than anyone else and probably I would think I'm worse because I acutely know the state of my own heart and I can only guess at the state of others we need to think about that when we're writing say on social media about politics Think about the fact that whatever you might think of, say, Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn, you probably, most of us, increasingly will have a visceral reaction to one or the other. Whichever one you don't like, remember that they are a human person who is made in the image of God and is no more evil than you. And when you think and write about them, remember that. That we only live here for a short time that our identity is not in a political party it is in the kingdom of heaven how do we win by dying and then peter ends with this 
kind of beautiful but slightly strange pithy statement. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Which is, I mean, it's interesting. He used, deliberately uses the same word for everyone and for the emperor. He's trying to remind us that the emperor is not God. Um, and then says more intensely, love the brotherhood, as in Christians, that is. So you should put the church before everyone else, but you should give everyone honor and respect and fear God, that's right at the top. You particularly give your reverence and your devotion to God. But your increased reverence for God and your increased regard for other Christians does not mean that you do not give great respect to everybody you meet, including those in political authority. Or to put it another way, be polite. You're in someone else's house, do the washing up. (laughs) We live for the sake of the place that we're in. It's not our house, and we need to remember that. But it is good to not trap mud everywhere, and it is good to do the washing up. And Rick's smiling at me, because I went to his house on Friday, and I didn't do the washing up. (laughs) Um, But it's when we realise who we are that we can submit to authority. The man who cut off someone else's ear, trying to stop them arresting Jesus, never forgot that God was the one who washed his feet. And you can, that is what, it's not the man who cut someone, else off his, cut someone else's ear off that you see here, it's the man who knows that God washed his feet, that the master, the servant king, allowed himself to be mastered, that Jesus won by dying, that Peter and the Christians would beat the Roman Empire by dying. You see, the one with ultimate authority stooped to our level for our sake. Dear friends, we, if we follow Jesus, are blood-bought princes and princesses. We are heirs of a mighty kingdom and therefore can be subject even to the most evil of empires because we choose to humble ourselves as he did and we win by dying. 